Heavenly Father, it is good for us to gather in your name this morning and to come before your word in an effort to be moulded and shaped by it. Lord, we pray that we may heed the warnings in it. We pray that we may look to the future and consider what you have told that is to come. Lord, we pray that we may prepare ourselves to meet our maker. And we pray that you may work upon our hearts this morning by your Holy Spirit so that we may carefully consider what your word says to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a child, I was quite a bit of a fire bug. I was fascinated by fire, as I would say a lot of little boys are. And my parents were fairly lenient, really, in letting me play with fire. Uh, I had a little spot in the backyard that was my spot for fire. And I melted down a serious number of candles in that spot in the backyard. And I was quite fascinated with fire in that regard that wax would make anything burn for quite some time. If you had a little stick or something and lit it on fire, it would only burn for a short amount of time. But if you had wax there and kept dipping it in the wax, it would continue to burn. And so this part of the backyard became quite hardened with a number of candles melted down into it. We used to have carols by candlelight at our church, which is just over the back. And after the carols by candlelight each year, I used to go around and scavenge all the wax that I could find on the ground. Uh, and it was quite a serious event, uh, this carols by candlelight, large numbers of people would show up, large numbers of candles were present and large amounts of wax was dropped on the ground. And so I had quite the little fire going on uh, throughout much of my childhood in that part of the backyard. And today we're going to learn about a fire that would be every little boy's dream, a fire that never went out. I was able to keep my little fires going continuously for a little period of time while I was playing there, but they're always would have to go out once I was done playing. My parents never allowed me to keep a continuous fire going there in the backyard. But that is not the kind of fire that we read about today in Leviticus chapter 6. In Leviticus chapter 6, that passage that we just had read for us, we hear about a fire that is continuous, and that is the fire of the burnt offering. And that brings me to my first main point this morning. The fire of the burnt offering was not quenched. The fire of the burnt offering was not quenched. If you want to follow my main points, they're listed there on the back of the church bulletin. And the first is about this fire of the burnt offering not being quenched. And we read in a number of times in this very short passage in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 8 through to verse 13, a reference to this fire and how it is to be continuous. Again and again it is said, make sure that this fire does not go out. And we see that firstly in verse 9. Um, reading from Leviticus chapter 6, which is found on page 101, 101 of the Black Church Bibles. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 9, we read this command from the Lord to Moses. Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. This offering must be kept there from the evening till the morning, and the fire must be kept burning with this burnt offering there. And that's not the only time that that is mentioned. We also see in verse 12, the fire is referenced again. Verse 12, the fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. It must be kept burning. It must not go out. Literally, in the Hebrew, when it says there, it must not go out, it's translated in our English translations as must not go out. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means quenched, extinguished. One word, it must not be extinguished. It must not be quenched. 
And then we see instructions given there in verse 12 to make sure that this fire is kept burning. In verse 12 we read, every morning the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. This fire is not to go out and so there is a direct command to the priest to make sure you put firewood on it. Make sure the firewood is there to keep this fire going continuously. And of course you keep the uh, fat of the, the, uh, the burnt offerings there uh, and that keeps the fire going too. If you ever do any barbecuing, uh, it's always fun to push a bit of fat around on the fire as you uh, pour oil on things or as the sausages pop open and there's some uh, fat drips down into the barbecue, you see a flare up of the fire. And that's what's happening with wax and candles as well. It's that, that fat that's burning up. And, uh, and that's what's going on here with this fire is that you've got the firewood keeping it going, then you've also got this fat giving it nice flares up all the time, uh, keeping this fire continuously going. And then in verse 13, if you didn't get the hint the first time, verse 13 is added to these priest's commands. Verse 13 says, the fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. Once again, it must be kept burning on the altar continuously. And then it says again in verse 13, it must not go out. Same Hebrew phrase that is used earlier in verse 12. It must not go out. It must not be quenched, literally. It must not be extinguished. This fire has to continue. Now, why is this command given? Why does the burnt offerings fire have to keep on going? Why can't it go out? Is it because the Levites were pyromaniacs? And God was giving them official permission to keep a fire going all the time. Is this a joy to their hearts to hear this command that, oh yes, we can keep fires going here continuously all the time? No, I think the reason that the Lord gives this command is because a number of other things are continuous. And so the fire on the burnt offering has to be continuous as well. What else is happening in this Israelite community that is continuous? Well, it's the sin of the Israelite community. The Israelites don't sin once and then move on with their lives. They sin again and again. If you read the Old Testament, it is abundantly clear that the Israelites are not a good group of people. Yes, they follow the Lord at times, but they continue to slip into sin again and again. That's not just when they're living in Egypt or uh, in the the wilderness, when they're walking around there in the wilderness, they're sinning against God. But you see, once they make it to the promised land, they continue to sin. There's never a period in Israelites, in Israelites' history in the Old Testament where there aren't people engaging in false worship. There aren't people who are breaking the Lord's commands. So what does that mean? It means that their sin is continuous. It continues to happen. And the other thing that's happening in the Israelite community that is continuous is the wrath of God against them. We see again and again in the Old Testament that God is not happy with the sin of the Israelites and he continues to judge them. He continues to send his wrath upon them. So what is the solution to this problem of the continuous sin of the Israelite and the wrath of God that is continuously poured out upon them for their sin? It's to have an intercession made for them that is continuous. They need this fire to be constantly going with the burnt offerings on it so that the wrath of God may be averted, that there's an intercessory sacrifice being made continuously for the sin of the Israelites, that there's a continuous sacrifice between them and God so the wrath of God may not descend upon them. 
And so there's this instruction given to the priests. If you're going to be faithful people to myself, then you need to recognize that you're continuous sinners and so you need a continuous offering to be there so that the wrath of myself, which is continuous against sin, would be abated. And so that burnt offering is always there to come between me and my wrath towards you and yourself. Now, this seems like an interesting passage in the Old Testament, and we might think, oh, well, that's a construction to Aaron and his sons, and we think, well, what relevance does this have to us today? Well, I think it has relevance to us, in particular pointing us to a fire that is mentioned in the New Testament in a very similar way, a fire that is an eternal fire, a fire that is not extinguished, a fire that is said to be never quenched, and that is the fire of hell. And that's my second main point this morning. The fire of hell will not be quenched. The fire of hell will not be quenched. Such a fire was first announced in the New Testament by John the Baptist. John the Baptist talks about this eternal fire. And so I invite you to turn with me to page 957, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Page 957. Page 957, Matthew chapter 3, and I'll read from verse 10. He's talking to some Pharisees and Sadducees who've come out to see him baptizing, and he doesn't have some, he, he hasn't got nice words to say to them. He talks about them being brood of vipers, and then down in verse 10 he says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire, fire that is not quenched. Who goes into this unquenchable fire that is spoken of in the New Testament? Well, Jesus speaks about those who are destined for the eternal fire, and he does that in, on page 969, a few pages over from where we just were, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. Matthew chapter 13, verse 36, where Jesus is explaining uh, a parable uh, to his disciples. So he's given the parable of the weeds in verse 24. Maybe this afternoon you might like to read it. Uh, But then he gives the explanation in verse 36 and following. It says in verse 36, Then he, that's Jesus, left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And then on page 969, Matthew chapter 13, we read in verse 37, He, that is Jesus, answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Who goes into this unquenchable fire? 
Well, verse 41 tells us quite plainly, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. All who do evil. If you do evil in this world, you are destined for that eternal fire. And Jesus says a similar statement in his um, speaking about the eternal fire in Mark chapter 9 as well. Mark chapter 9, turn with me there, page 1001. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Mark chapter 9, page 1001, verse 43, where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, everyone will be salted with fire. Who is destined for this unquenchable fire? It is those who sin. Clearly, he gives a couple of examples there. If your hand is causing you to sin, better cut it off and not sin than go into the flames of hell. And if your eye or your foot causes you to sin, get rid of them rather than sin and be punished eternally for that sin that you've committed. And it's not just John the Baptist and Jesus who speak about the eternal nature of this fire for those who do evil, for those who sin. We read in Jude, the Lord's brother, Jude says in Jude verse 7, it says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Jude speaks clearly about eternal fire, and it is for those who have given themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And the Apostle John himself also speaks of this fire in the book of Revelation, book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, which is found on page 1225. Look this one up with me as well. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. where the apostle records this for us. Revelation chapter 14, reading from verse nine. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. John is clear that this goes on forever and ever this fire. There is no rest day or night for those who are in the eternal flames. We may be saying, well, isn't this a bit unfair that hell goes on forever? That it's an eternal punishment? That the fire never goes out? That it is not quenched? Surely those who sin don't deserve eternal punishment. They don't deserve unquenchable fire. 
But we have to remember, just like the sin of the Israelites was continuous, and so the fire was continuous against the burnt offering on their behalf, so the sin of humans is continuous as well. We continually sin in this world, and then there is no hint in the scriptures that in the next world we will stop sinning. Those in hell are never said to be repentant of their sins and calling out for God to have mercy on them and saying, I want to be faithful to the Lord. In fact, we see references to people in the, in the book of Revelation who are indicated to continue on in their sin. We're in the book of Revelation from reading that passage just before. Look with me at Revelation chapter 16, verse 21. The book of Revelation is difficult to understand. Uh, it speaks about the different plagues that are happening at the end of the age. And it's very interesting, the response of people to one of the plagues in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 21, which is found on page 1,226. We read, verse 21, from the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds, that's 50 kilos, give or take, each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Here is the judgment of God descending as 50 kilo hailstones upon people. And what is their response? Have mercy, Lord. What is their response? They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. That's as they're experiencing the judgment of God. And then we read in Revelation 22, verse 11. Revelation 22, verse 11, which I think we can take as an example of uh, a text that says that people will continue to remain in their sins for the rest of eternity if they're in hell. Verse, 20, uh, verse 11 of Revelation 22, I'll read from verse 10 though. It says, Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. I think there's no indication in the Bible that people will be repentant in hell. I think there's good reason to think that people will be unrepentant in hell from scriptures that we've just looked at then. And then that, that, uh, that story told by Jesus in Luke chapter 16 that we had read to us earlier about the rich man and Lazarus. And we see a man who is suffering torments. And we see his response to those torments. What does he say to Abraham? He calls out to Abraham. He's able to speak to Abraham. And what does he say? In Luke chapter 16, verse 20, we read, in Hades, in verse 23, I should say, in Hades where he was in torment, that rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in, in agony in this fire. He wants alleviation from his suffering. But he doesn't cry out in repentance to the Lord. He doesn't say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, while he's there suffering for his sin. We know that the repentance is a gift from the Lord. And I don't see any indication in the scriptures that that gift is given to anyone in hell. And so if their sin is continuous against the Lord, if they're cursing God because of his punishment towards them for all of eternity, 
and God is continually wrathful against sin, then it makes sense that hell is a continuous punishment. It's not as though at some point in the future that God will suddenly not be wrathful against sin anymore, that he will forego justice against those who are rebelling against him. No, he is a God of justice. He is a God who does not change. He is an eternal God. And if he is a just God today, then he will be a just God for well into the future, for the rest of eternity. And so if people continue to rebel against him, then he will continue to be just toward them and punish them accordingly. So it's not unfair for God to punish continuous rebels with continuous punishment for the rest of eternity. Now this is an awful subject to be considering today. It's something that many preachers wouldn't want to preach on and there's a whole group of Christian ministers today who teach that hell is not an eternal punishment. They believe in annihilationism that at some point you will be annihilated, you will be destroyed and cease to exist. That's what hell will eventually be. They do not like this idea of a continuous punishment. But we can't back away from a truth just because we don't like it. If you had a doctor who knew you had cancer and he knew it would upset you to tell you that you have cancer and he didn't tell you, would you think he was a good doctor? Because he knew the news that he had for you would upset you. He kept it from you. No, you'd think he was an awful doctor. You'd probably sue him if you found out that he knew you had cancer. You had a terrible condition and he kept it from you because it would make you sad. How much worse if a pastor knows about a continuous punishment that goes for all of eternity if he keeps that secret from you? If that is a truth that the Bible proclaims, and I've tried to make it clear today that it's the Bible that tells this. I'm not making this up. It's the Bible. I've taken you through passage after passage in the New Testament that speaks about it being an eternal fire. This is God's word, and he is telling you a truth that will upset you, yes. But he's telling it to you for your good. He's telling it to you because it is true. And so I, as a minister of all of Scripture, have to alert you to this fact that there is a continuous fire destined for those who sin against God. But is there any hope for us? Well, that brings me to my third main point this morning. The fire of God's wrath can be quenched in Christ. The fire of God's wrath can be quenched in Christ. The reason you want a doctor to tell you if you have a life-threatening illness is so that you can be saved from it. The reason you want your doctor to tell you that you've got cancer is so that you can make some amends to your life so that you can survive through that illness. And that is what we want to know. That is the reason we want to know about the doctrine of hell. It's so that we can be saved from it. And the wonderful thing is that there is a way for the fire of hell to be quenched. And that is in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, the fire of hell that was poured out on him went out. Amazingly. This fire that's an eternal fire was poured out on Christ and he was able to take it so that the fire of God's wrath against him was quenched. 
And this is what is taught to us in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, turn with me to page 1190. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10 speaks about what was happening in the Old Testament, which we've read from Leviticus 6, but then also how Christ is a greater sacrifice than all those sacrifices in the Old Testament. It's a wonderful passage, and I'll read to you from Hebrews chapter 10, page 1190, from verse 1. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. You see what he's saying here? He's saying those sacrifices in the Old Testament had to be continuous because the people were continuously sinful. If they weren't continuously sinful, then they wouldn't have felt guilty and the sacrifices wouldn't have had to be continually made. That fire would have been allowed to go out. That's the Old Testament. But what has happened now? Read with me from verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Christ's sacrifice is not a continuous sacrifice. It doesn't go on and on. Why? Because he has quenched the flames that you deserve. You're a sinner and you deserve eternal punishment for your sin. But if you trust in Christ's sacrifice for you, then those eternal flames are poured out on Christ and because of his divinity, because of his infinite worth, his infinite value there at the cross, he was able to absorb that punishment for you. And so you no longer look forward to future punishment. Instead, you look forward to future reward based on what Christ has done for you. This is a marvelous truth that Christ himself would take that eternal wrath that you deserve and bear it for you. And he put it out. How do we know he was sufficient? By his resurrection from the dead. If Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient, then he would be still dead today or he'd still be up on that cross suffering for the rest of eternity like that flame was continuously burning as the Levitical priests fed it continuously with wood. Christ would still be bearing your sin. But he doesn't need to bear your sin anymore because he's been sufficient in his sacrifice. He's been raised from the grave and the Bible says clearly that shows that we are justified before God. His sacrifice is deemed worthy in God's eyes for the punishment that we deserve for sin. And so the fires have gone out for those who trust in Christ. So what are you to do? Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. He is the sufficient sacrifice. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ today. Do it now. Today is the day of salvation. 
There is no hint in the scriptures, remember, that you can repent in the next life while you're suffering in hell for your sins. There is no indication of that. There's a cult known as Mormonism that teaches that that is true. That in the next life, if you repent, you can experience heaven. That is not a scriptural doctrine. That is false doctrine taught by a cult that is not true Christianity. The Bible does not teach that. There is no place for repentance that we can see in hell, a turning to God in trust. There is only a cursing of God for the rest of eternity as he pours punishment out on you. So today, trust in Christ. Today, repent of your sins. Ask God for forgiveness for your sins. Ask that Christ be the sacrifice for you. And if you have done that, which I know many of you in this church have, and I'm just so pleased that I will be spending the rest of eternity with you and not suffering for the rest of eternity with you in hell, if that is you, you have turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, what else are you to do in light of this teaching about the eternal nature of hell? Witness to others. Share the good news. Share the bad news about hell, but then share the good news that the fires of hell can be quenched in Christ. I look at my own life and I think often I don't believe enough in the doctrine of hell. If I did, I'd be more bold in making Christ known. If I truly believed that those around me who do not believe in Christ were destined for eternal damnation, for eternal punishment, would I sit back so much and let them walk toward hell? We as Christians should not only focus on the doctrine of hell when we're considering becoming a Christian. We should focus on it to remind us of what awaits those around us who are outside of Christ so that that would motivate us to share the good news, that we would want to grab them out of the burning building, pluck them from the flames so that they can spend the rest of eternity with us in heaven rather than the rest of eternity in hell. And if we're Christians, we shouldn't just focus on the doctrine of hell to make us witness to those around us. We should also remember to be increasingly thankful for what God has done. The doctrine of hell should scare us, but then when we understand what Christ has done for us, it should make us so thankful for his mercy. What marvellous mercy the Lord has had upon us. He didn't need to send his son to do that. We could have remained his objects of wrath for the rest of eternity. But he in his mercy, in his grace, in his love for us, sent his son to take hell for us. That should give us joy every day. One of my favourite preachers alive today I heard him interviewed once and <clears throat> someone was saying to him, how do you feel that the church is going in this day and age? And people are talking about how increasing secularism is there, the militant atheists are out there, Islam seems to be on the merge and growing all the time. And it looks like things are getting bad. And this favourite preacher of mine said, I think things are going okay. None of us are in hell where we deserve to be. We're doing all right. We should be in hell right now suffering for our sins, but we're not. And that gives us a reason to have joy in the Lord and what he is doing. And I try to remind myself of that fact as well. When I'm being a bit 
melancholic, when I'm being a little bit depressed about what's going on in the world and what's happening here in our suburb and how I don't see people turning to Christ in the way that I'd like them to. I remind myself that I'm not in hell where I deserve to be. The doctrine of hell can lead us to joy because of what Christ has done. And we should never minimise it. It's there clearly in the scriptures. Jesus is quite unabashed about it. John the Baptist proclaims it. The Apostle John there in Revelation proclaims it. And it is beneficial for us in our souls to understand it and to even derive joy from it as we understand what Christ has done for us in conquering hell on our behalf. Let us come before our Lord in prayer now. Let us speak to him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all of your word. Even the parts of your word that upset us, that we find difficult to stomach, Lord, we thank you that as we consider them carefully, we can see how they're there for our benefit. That the doctrine of hell and its eternal nature encourages us to flee to Christ, flee to him like we flee to no one else, so that that fire that we deserve is quenched in him on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that this doctrine also leads us to make you known to those around us. And we pray that it would do so. May it motivate us to open our mouths about the gospel. It is good news. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do so. And, Lord, we pray that it also may remind us of how much you love us, that you took that eternal fire that we deserve. And so, Lord, may we never be discouraged, knowing that when we're not receiving what we do deserve, which is that eternal punishment. You have been so merciful, so gracious to us in redeeming us from that eternal fire. And so, Lord, we pray that we may always be joyful as a result of this truth. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.